Okay, welcome back to the We Do Science podcast. I am uh, Laurel Bannock, and um, today we are on episode 106. Um, and it is a complete coincidence that my um, guest expert today has a strong link to the last uh, podcast that I did with Professor Craig Sell. Today I have Dr. Kirsty Elliott Sale, the better half of the duo, <laughs> no less. Hi, Kirsty. How are you doing? Good morning. Doing very well, actually. Uh, slight cold, but yeah, um, you and me both. You and me both. I to interfere with, um, yeah, with the accent. We well, we're, we're, we're gonna we're 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 gonna man up and woman up on this, aren't we? We're gonna get because <laughs> we're hardcore podcasters. So there um, are. Uh, just before we started recording, I, I had mentioned that uh, actually the last time we did a podcast, which was on a similar but not not the same specific topic, which I'll introduce in a minute, was episode 57 in June 2015 on um, the female athlete triad and uh, reds, um, which just shows you how much time flies. But also, as I was reading ahead of our um, for our chat today, is the, uh, um, the, the new knowledge that has entered the body of knowledge on this, this topic, which will be um, nutritional considerations for the female um, athlete. Um, uh, you know, there has, there has not been, an in, you know, there's, there has been a fair amount of, of new work that's, that's come to light. Um, and when I say a fair amount, I mean in the, you know, whatever that means in terms of sports science, obviously uh, uh, it's still not, not that much. Um, so just think, well, firstly, I want to direct people back to that episode number 57. It was a great episode. It's still entirely relevant. We'll touch on some of those topics now, but for those that, um, have not heard of, uh, have not had that episode and have yet to come across you and your work, if you can just give us a quick snapshot of, of, of who you are, please. Okay, so who am I? Big question. Who are you? <laughs> um, so I am a sports scientist by trade, um, but then obviously through PhD, I've focused in on exercise physiology. And I guess I'm well known for, I guess, um, my female physiology, my knowledge in, in that particular area. Um, I tend to work exclusively with females. That's not to say that you won't see some publications of mine um, with male participants, but they're usually my more sort of collaborative studies. And um, so um, if you rewind about 20 something years ago, my PhD was um, around female physiology in so much as I was really interested in the effects of female reproductive hormones on muscle function. Um, and that was, um, my PhD took place with John Moores, who had a, a long-standing already history of this type of work. So work from Dr. Julie Greaves um, already in this field. And so I took up um, that particular area and, and pushed that a little bit forward using um, some traditional models, like I say, menstrual cycle or contraceptives, um, but then also some um, more unusual models. So I looked at um, in vitro fertilization, and which probably seems very removed from sports science for your listeners. But actually what that particular model um, does is it changes female reproductive hormones to the extreme. If you were to think about the menstrual cycle having um, small, acute and um, transient changes in estrogen and progesterone, IVF has, you know, super physiological changes. And um, so clearly, you know, any effect that you might see would be magnified under that situation. And um, so that was a fantastic sort of clinical model I was able to take and use in, into sports science. And also looked at um, strength and pregnancy, 
which is, I guess, uh, whilst IVF is considered to be something very exogenous away from the natural sort of system, obviously pregnancy is something that's very natural. And um, so during pregnancy, estrogen and progesterone just increase constantly over the three trimesters. So again, looking at these large scale, more chronic changes and their effect on, on muscle. So that was sort of my, my PhD 20, 20 <coughs> something years ago. Um, and then since then, um, I've, I've been really lucky to stay within my field and had a, you know, a few really fantastic PhD students who've worked in this area. Um, moving sort of the female side and um, performance into the idea of red, that, into that domain, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. And um, I guess also on the flip side, um, which is a little outside the scope of the podcast, but just to mention that the other work that um, I tend to do with a really fantastic group at National Trek University is work around um, you know, maternal health. So looking at using exercise interventions for, for new mums, helping them with weight management and um, helping them sort of, you know, with um, some indices of health. So yeah, all in a career predominantly around female physiology and uh, yeah, hopefully it will last another 20-something years. <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, I mean, there's so much more to learn, obviously, um, which, will, which is in itself something I want to I talk about. You know, where are we in that spectrum of, of, of this body of knowledge on this topic? But um, um, I guess as, as, as any male, um, there, has, there has in one way or another been a, a fascination as to the um, you know, that fantastical creature that is the female. <laughs> and, um, and of course, you know, as we delve into this topic in particular, um, is the really quite fascinating complexity um, that we find, you know, that we find in this, particularly as it relates to how as, as sports scientists, um, performance nutritionists, researchers, etc., we should be looking at our clients as we individualize them um, because they're not just athletes, they're females, um, they're males, they may be younger, they may be older. Um, there's many different individ individualizable or um, my favorite word, um, you know, if we're to contextualize all of this, that there, there's a great deal here. And of course, there is a propensity, or at least there has been in the past, to... Um, you know, have a blanket approach, particularly in sports nutrition, sort of, you know, male or female, young or old, everyone kind of gets told the same thing. So just so we're all on the same page between you and me and, and, and our wonderful listeners here, let, let's just do a few, um, a few sort of definitions just so we're all absolutely clear about what we're talking about. So, so um, I guess we're going to be talking about athletes and we're going to be talking about females. Maybe you could help define what we mean by a female athlete. What, what does that term even mean? Wow. Isn't that a big question? What is yeah. a female? <laughs> wow. The sociologists. Yeah. I think they're, they're better, better place to answer that, but certainly obviously I'll answer that from, from my perspective as a physiologist. And, um, you know, <laughs> quite often when I, I go to speak somewhere, I'm often billed as that person who talks about the smaller men. And, and clearly that isn't true. Where, you know, females are not just smaller men and you can't just take um, nutritional guidelines uh, for males and just reduce them slightly for your smaller female athletes. And so for me, the, the biggest sort of fundamental difference um, between males and females um, is around that endocrine system um, so particularly the female reproductive cycle um, so for for us we can look at it in a, in a lifespan approach 
So sort of from birth up until puberty, we don't really have very many differences between our, our males and females on that front. Um, however, we don't tend to have a lot of um, eight-year-olds who are elite female athletes. Um, so, you know, we don't, we don't tend to, to study that particular group. And um, upon puberty, that's really where the differences occur. So, and clearly we have teenage um, athletes and, and youth athletes. So we, we do have to start to differentiate between males and females at that point. And really, obviously, at the onset of puberty, we're talking about the instigation of the menstrual cycle, which we hope, I say we hope, and um, clearly there are some athletes who, um, due to either, you know, training volume or nutritional deficiencies or something, you know, on a more medical side, they have a, a delayed onset of puberty and a delayed instigation of that menstrual cycle known as primary amenorrhea. But if we put that aside for a moment, um, we're expecting that our female athletes will start to experience a menstrual cycle, which is a cyclical um, pattern of changes in, in predominantly two hormones, which are estrogen and progesterone. And if we were to look at a textbook, we would be told that this pattern repeats every 28 days. That's not really true. Um, it's very useful for us to describe it in, in that way. Um, but really, we're talking about anything between 21 and 35 days. So clearly, that's quite variable. So that's variable between our female athletes. So if you're working with a group of athletes, one female um, may have a 24-day cycle, and the next athlete might have a 31, somebody else might have a 27. So that's introducing variability between them. Um, to make it more complex, the same athlete might have variability between her cycles, meaning that, you know, the first month it's 27 days, the next month it's 30 days, the next month it's 20-something days, and, and so on. So there's a lot of variability around the length of, of this cyclical pattern. Um, but if we were to pretend it was 28 days, um, we can break it down into, to, I guess, three phases. Um, the start, which is the most evident, I think, to, to athletes. And I think, you know, regardless of whether you're male or female, we, we tend to understand and, and see this phase um, clearly. So this is menstruation. And so at the start of the cycle, menstruation should occur. Um, estrogen and progesterone are low. Okay, so that's, you know, that's, as I say, the most evident of the phases. Then um, we have a change in, in estrogen around the mid-cycle where ovulation occurs. Um, in terms of being a practitioner, we really should be um, measuring this and, and noting this, making a note of this. So how we do that as practitioners is that we ask our female athletes to use an ovulation kit. Now, this is something you can buy from any pharmacy, even a, a supermarket. They're commercially available. And the reason why we want to do this is because um, we can have a menstrual cycle where menstruation occurs, where bleeding occurs, but ovulation may not occur. And it's really important to us that we're showing each month that ovulation occurs, that we're having this mid-cycle peak in estrogen. Okay, because estrogen is great for bone health, we really want that peak. So as practitioners, as well as asking our female athletes to tell us when they're menstruating, when they're bleeding, I think we should move towards best practice, making sure that our female athletes are ovulating. So that's the second phase, ovulation in the middle where estrogen is high and progesterone is, is just staying low. In the third and final phase, this is when progesterone starts to increase in peaks and um, estrogen is what we would say maybe a medium concentration. I'm going to recap it in, in one sentence because I know I, I tend to. Right. Yeah. So three phases, at the start, menstruation, bleeding, both estrogen and progesterone are low. In the middle, we have the ovulatory phase where estrogen is high and progesterone is low. And then towards the back end, we have the luteal phase, 
but progesterone is high and estrogen is at a, a sort of a medium concentration. Clearly then they begin to both fall off and lower down so that the cycle can start again with menstruation. So that's what we're looking for. And I think that's the real differentiation. Um, men, you know, males upon the onset of puberty don't have these cyclical changes which occur over a defined period of time. And it really is, I think, the thing that makes us different. Um, it, doesn't, it makes us different in two ways. A, because of the cyclical hormonal changes. But B, female athletes have to contend with menstruation. And, and that's something that the, the guys don't. And we have to consider that. So, so, in essence, what you're saying is, is us males are basically just simple, <laughs> and, uh, and females are, uh, as I said, wonderfully complex. And of course, you know, you, you, as you talk about this, and as you delve into the literature, and you've, um, you know, presented for us at, at the Guru Performance Institute on a, on a number of our things um, or, or with lectures on these topics, it just becomes apparent that, that as a practitioner, we really do, you know, we're not just differentiating males from females, as you've already pointed out. It's also going to be a question of, of not only, you know, this is a female, we'll get into age and everything in a minute, but also where, you know, where, where in the month, what, 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 what day, <laughs> what type, what, what, you know, what version, if you like, of, of this female athlete are we even looking at? And it's quite, quite a significant difference as it relates to, I'm thinking about, you know, the long-term implications of um, periodized training plans. Um, you know, we'll get into this maybe um, time dependent, um, you know, the whole seasonal fluctuations of training and competition which don't build themselves around a female's individual uh, menstrual cycles. Um, and of course, this stuff does influence adaptations to training and environmental factors. Are, 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 I mean, I know, I know because I've heard you lecture on this, will have some influence, whether it's nutritional stuff um, and so on, um, which we'll get into. Um, but simply being aware of all of this, of all of these variations, I, I guess empowers us as practitioners to have a better understanding about not just what we should be doing, but why maybe things are or are not, you know, going the way that that you want to. But I, I think being sensitive to the fact that this is going on is important. But of course, that raises the the issue of um, um, of how the you know how does one even have this conversation? Um, obviously, we need to significantly increase our knowledge base we obviously need to be aware of our scope of practice which we can talk about in a minute because there's going to be a difference between being a sports scientist or a researcher or um, a performance nutrition practitioner and a, a gynecologist or a gp <laughs> yeah for example but we are whether we like it or not particularly as practitioners involved in this and we you know we we, we obviously have to bear this in mind just a little caveat to that the 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 need to have that conversation. And I remember you talking about this in one of the lectures you gave us, um, you know, about it is important to have these conversations. Do you, do you have any sort of words of wisdom or advice, um, you know, on that particular area? Yeah, no, I, I do for sure. I think it's, it's remembering that, you know, when we're talking about female athletes, you know, these are athletes first and foremost, and they, they want to improve. They want to win. They want to maximize performance and training. 
And if we take a view that the menstrual cycle is, is just another aspect of this, you know, you don't feel embarrassed when you're talking about somebody's, you know, um, how often they train or what they're eating. And we really, we just have to push forward now and, and make this an everyday conversation. Um, you know, I quite often get asked, but it's easier for you, you know, how are we meant to do it as, as male practitioners? And the truth of it is, once you've said it once, everything will just be so much easier after that. And, and so sometimes maybe maybe a good compromise is to start off maybe with a questionnaire. So the questionnaire asking that particular athlete about their cycles and characteristics. Um, and then obviously once they hand back the questionnaire, it's so much easier to look at that questionnaire and say, oh, I see you've put this. And then suddenly you're in the conversation. But if we just normalize it, if, you know, just take it in as another aspect of performance. And certainly my experience and that of, you know, my various PhD students, of, of which some are men, once you ask, they're more than happy to tell you, you know, I've never met a female athlete yet who's reluctant to, to discuss this with me. And, and maybe I should point out, because we're, we're talking about the complexities, of course, we've only so far accounted for half of the female athletes because we haven't mentioned the other 50% of female athletes are, or, well, hormonal contraceptive users. And so... Of course, you know, we, we've got to have conversations around that too. And I think you made a really great point that, you know, I am, you know, a sports scientist, exercise physiologist. I'm not a gynecologist, although quite often I think I sound like one. So it's about having enough knowledge to ask the right questions and to understand the responses. Because clearly as a practitioner, we must never collect data that we don't use. And, you know, so I think it's about opening, you know, starting the conversation in an appropriate way, you know, tracking that showing the athletes how it's going to be useful to them because you know clearly that's your buy-in just like every other aspect if you're asking them to change their diet and you know just normalizing it you know regardless of, of, of which sex you are yourself you know yeah I, I you know i i've really tried to um sell or promote if you like the importance of individualization you know, I, uh, it's such, it's, it's key. You know, we, we do that to a certain extent by doing things like people's height and weight. We maybe ask them how old they are. Um, we, you know, we, we now go to doing things like um, body composition assessments. We're starting to understand, you know, what differentiates one person from another. We may even work out their somatotype, you know, their body types and so on. Um, um there's even psychological profiling you know there's there's all sorts of stuff going on but but this particular area is something that still is largely not looked into we're still not individualizing the female yeah. you know uh, which is i guess is too just classifying your athlete as well one they're an athlete and two they're female is maybe is too simplistic isn't it, it it's yeah. it's it really is um Right, there's quite a lot to get into here, and I just want to make sure, because this really is actually such a massive topic. I, I mentioned the body of knowledge earlier on this topic. Um, you know, we last talked about some of this stuff in June 2015. Um, you, you know, how, how, how long is the, um, you know, is, is the pathway of knowledge, um, or the, you know, in terms of, 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 of it being significant quality information, and where are we? in that spectrum relative to maybe other areas in sports science, just to, just to get an idea of where we're at with this. Okay, so it's a really great question. Um, at the moment, female athlete research is, is very topical, it's very popular, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing more and more um, articles on it. 
It is unfortunately, um, and I'll hold my hands up to this, um, myself as, as an author, it is unfortunately still an area where we see a lot of review papers, um, maybe perhaps even sometimes more review papers and opinion pieces than we have experimental studies. Um, so we've got to be, be careful about that. Um, it clearly shows a thirst for knowledge. People want to know and people want to read these reviews and they want to get up to speed as quickly as they can. So it's, it's not necessarily such a, you know, it's, it's not um, a, a really bad criticism, but what I'm, I guess I'm trying to articulate is we, we still need to see more studies. And um, it's sort of common in waves. So um, I'm always quick to point out that this is not a new area. Um, I think I'm, I'm well known for pointing out um, a very famous Harvard essay from, oh, you'll have to forgive me if, if the date's not quite right. I want to say 1876, around that sort of late, you know, 18, you know, approaching 19. A while ago. Yeah. yeah, a while ago. So my point is that it's not new. And there was this great essay written about, um, you know, the question of menstruation and, and how women, um, if this was more in an occupational setting, but women, how women have to contend with menstruation and, and these cyclical changes. Um, and so that holds true today. How will our athletes cope, cope with this? And so it's not new. It's come in in, web, in, in sort of waves and it ebbs and flows. Um, there's some really great work that I would encourage, if you're interested in this area, I would encourage you to read the papers from the 1990s. And, um, you know, I'm always horrified when the students now say to me, that work is so old and I'm like oh that's so old <laughs> <laughs> really. but no, there's some great papers uh, from me this you know a lot of the, the real sort of backbone of the work comes from there um it wanes slightly but it's great to see it coming back again what I will say is um, a number of things clearly it is um lacking and is behind male research and, and that's understandable um people often say but it's easier to do male studies it's not easier it's just quicker Okay, so, you know, doing female studies is not any more difficult, it just takes more time. So you're expected to do repeated measures in various phases. So it's not more difficult, it's just more time consuming. So clearly there's, there's not as many papers in females as males. But one thing I would, would like to maybe touch upon is that, you know, we have to look at the quality of these papers. Um, if you're going to do female research and, you know, you're going to commit to this, it is more time consuming, but there is more, there are more considerations in terms of research design and methodological rigor that need to be considered. So what do I mean by that? I'll give you one quick example. We shouldn't be reading papers today in, what are we now, 2019? 2019. Yeah, I'm yeah. slowly getting there. I, I need to stop writing 2018 or please. <laughs> in 2019, we shouldn't be reading papers where um, the authors have just counted the number of days and estimated the phase. So we should be reading papers today where um, we have blood confirmation, hormonal analysis to show this participant was in this phase and therefore we can make the link between whatever performance measure or nutritional aspect that is and that phase and that hormonal concentration. So I guess my two take home points are, yes, great to see more research, um, but we do have to be mindful of, of the quality of research in, in this area. And it is, it's improving all of the time. But as I say, just be careful, watch out for little things like that. And watch out for the variability that we spoke about at the start of the podcast, that we can assume everybody is 28 days. So, you know, we have to make sure that the studies are taking into account the variability in cycle length. Yeah, well, that's what I think, you know, that, that, that phrase that people use in many different contexts of a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing yeah. is highly relevant in, um, in this area. Um, 
there is a propensity to, you know, get sciencey about stuff. Um, you know, I love, uh, I love uh, Louise Burke's sort of whole mission on that, you know, yeah. you know, which comes off the back of the whole truthiness uh, thing. Um, Stephen Colbert uh, uh, raised a few years back, but, but, you know, that is important because we've got to be careful about applying science to practice. Um, and evidence-based practice is, is not about um, just applying something that conforms to that lovely sort of, you know, uh, hierarchy of, of evidence, you know, the difference between, say, um, a randomized control study and, say, um, a case study or, or even an anecdote. Um, we, we, as practitioners, we have to individualize and rationalize the information about whether or not it's actually relevant to the task at hand, which requires some critical thinking. And it's that critical thinking is, well, that's why we do these podcasts, for example, is to assist in the critical thinking process. Because, for example, just because something's been published, we'd like to think that that means that it's, you know, amazing quality. But unfortunately, we know that isn't necessarily the case and or it's adding to the body of knowledge, but it isn't, um, you know, the body of knowledge isn't that great necessarily and or may not be relevant, which is like my new favorite. If I had to choose a word beyond context, relevant <laughs> is my new, okay. my new favorite word. So that'll be the new range of t-shirts. Relevant. <laughs> is it relevant? Um, and that's, that's, I think, important here because what I have, I've heard you say this and I've certainly seen there is considerable variability in the quality and the relevance yeah. of that that research which is why number one highly recommend you know people who, who are interested in this which all practitioners should be who work with female athletes but you've got to read up and there's there's a fair amount you need to understand and also would you agree that you, you know you don't just read the papers you're gonna to have to have some grounding in things like physiology and endocrinology um to understand what you're actually reading um, yeah, perhaps you could mention that a little bit. Yeah, no, for, for me, um, I always encourage though, any students of mine who, who start off in this area, um, you know, regardless of whether they're from a, a physiology or a nutrition background, you know, it's taken out the textbook, you know, it's looking at the, you know, the endocrine system, you know, the female reproductive cycle, it's understanding what the hormones do when, and then the possible knock-on effects because clearly at the moment you know I, I've been you know you and I've been talking about these changes in hormones but mm. if we go back to your other favorite word context what does that mean who cares if these hormones are changing and it's really it's their knock-on effects so if I have a peak in estrogen what does that mean say to the skeletal system if I have a rise in progesterone what will that do to temperature regulation or what will that do to body composition so it's almost you know you've got to understand what they do and then you've got to obviously contextualize that into all of the other physiological systems and you know then you're still only I guess two-thirds of the way through the story because if you start to understand how they potentially affect other systems you then have to put it all back together for performance and so, you know, we're still a long way off. You know, I, I always feel a bit of a, a fraud. I, you know, if I'm given an hour lecture to give, you know, I'll, I'll talk all about the science, you know, right up until the 59th minute and people are at the edge of their seats going, but come on, tell me, tell me the answer. What does it, how does it affect performance? How does it affect nutrition? And I always like literally just take it away at the last minute and say, yeah, A, we still don't know. We don't have enough evidence. 
uh, and we don't have enough quality evidence. So those two things together, you know, and, and secondly, there are so many aspects of performance. Um, it's understanding that even if we were able to give the directional effect of menstrual cycle on performance or the magnitude of that change, you know, that's still only one aspect of the variability inherent within performance. So it's, you know, contextualizing that it's, it's another piece of the puzzle. And clearly, if we understand all of the pieces, then we can look through our different roles to maximize that. So if we understand diet, we can look to maximize that or, you know, strength and conditioning. And I think that, you know, that female reproductive endocrinology is a piece of the puzzle. But, you know, we mustn't say that if we figure this out, we've cracked female performance. It has a place. So, so yeah, it's so it's starting off understanding the hormones, then understanding how they affect other systems, and then trying to put that into the puzzle that is that is performance. And it certainly isn't easy, but we shouldn't avoid it. You know, I certainly think okay, if you're a researcher, yeah, you can avoid it. You can do your you can do studies on males, but as a practitioner, how are you going to avoid this? I mean, how many practitioners are really out there exclusively working with males? And it is great to see. You know, I've had so much interest the last two years. I've had so much interest from nutritionists, um, you know, sports science support, physiologists, you know, they're coming out of the woodwork. It's great to see this interest. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it really is. And it is, it is genuinely really interesting. It's not, it's not just an emerging area. It's fascinating. And, um, and of course there are, you know, there are areas that are starting to unravel in, in male physiology, of course, um, James Morton recently gave us some interesting lectures about energy availability yes. and relative energy deficiency in particularly as it relates to males. Um, and that was pretty mind blowing. So, um, <coughs> my turn to cough. So let's just, um, I'm aware of time here. So let's just get into a few things. So look, the, 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 the listeners can read, there's plenty of, uh, mechanistic stuff that can be read. There's some good reviews and consensus statements, which I will point people to in the show notes. We'll, we'll mention them possibly at the end here. Um, at Guru Performance, we've been pumping out on our social media a few scary diagrams um, that relates to some of the, these topics. But let's, let's just simplify and reduce down a few things, because as, as we have both been mentioning here, it, you know, the, the science is essential, but um, it's the ability to contextualize that to what is relevant to that, that particular person that we're working with. Um, so... So, you know, why is this relevant to the female athlete? Why do we, you know, what are the implications of, of not having some degree of understanding of this? And, and then we can go into some of the areas specifically. So, so, so what, are the, what are the actual consequences of, um, of, you know, of these hormonal issues um, and also the... The, the the resulting impact of of what what we do with athletes or what athletes do to themselves like restricting energy intake um extreme travel significant training stresses you know what are the implications of this okay right broad I'm question try and be, i'm going to try and be clear and concise okay um so number one is um if we're not considering um the menstrual cycle we're going to have athletes who are underperforming, undertraining, undereating, having lots of negative consequences because they're dealing with side effects associated with the menstrual cycle and they're not telling us. Um, so as I said at the start, 
physically dealing with a period of menstruation is, you know, is difficult. So we need to, we need to be mindful of that. So that's going to affect, potentially affect an athlete's ability to, to train during that or to compete during that. And um, so if you can imagine clearly going to the Olympics or, you know, at the World Championships and then obviously suddenly starting to menstruate. So that's, that's the first thing. So we, we, need to, we need to look at menstruation. Clearly, um, the cyclical changes associated with the menstrual cycle, if they have the ability to affect many or all of our physiological systems and then therefore performance, then clearly we have to understand which phase they're in so that we can adapt training and nutrition to maximize those responses or clearly to, to limit any negative effects um, that that might have. It's particularly important for females. So clearly we have had the female athlete triad for, you know, has been around for such a long time. Um, and I, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that. But here we're looking at this. Episode 57, episode 57. <laughs> yes, we, we mind. Listen to that one first. Um, but, you know, clearly within this, so it's a, it's a triangle. And I'm, I'm, I'm used, Laurence, obviously watching me, waving my arms around and making like my Like a conductor, Kirsty. Yes, it's, it's a very visual thing. You're lucky yeah, yeah. if you're listening, listeners, and podcast. But clearly it's a triangle. And here for the female athlete triad, we have menstrual function in one of the corners um, working, you know, so in, in a synergistic pattern with energy availability and with bone, bone health. And so clearly the, the sort of short version is if we have um, low energy availability, this can blunt our menstrual function. Okay, so it can result in that lovely cyclical pattern becoming essentially a, a flat line. Let's you know, sort of reduce it to simplistic terms. Um, if we don't have these sort of beautiful peaks in estrogen and secondary rises in the luteal phase, this affects our bone health. So, you know, historically, female athlete triad is pointing out that menstrual function is key. It's fundamental to good bone health and linked with our energy availability. Okay, what else? So that's three things so far. Um, more recently, it's been upscaled into reds. Okay, so this is relative energy deficiency in sport. And it, it has, it shares, I guess, two of the main principles of, of the female athlete triad. It's concerned with low energy availability and um, menstrual function. Okay, so endocrine reproductive physiology is, is a part of that. But what REDS has done is it's expanded um, this concept way beyond just bone health. And it includes um, 20 aspects of um, physiological functioning and or performance. Okay, and clearly they're linked. And so it's expanded and, and it sort of made our, our mindset to think, well, clearly if we, you know, as an athlete, if we have a low energy availability, other systems will be sacrificed in order to prioritize the, the, the physical activity. Um, what I guess for me is, is a little so far unclear, particularly through the red diagrams, is whether, so at the moment, menstrual function is, is one aspect of this. Um, what we don't know is how um, whether that will be a synergistic effect in red with the other sort of nine indices um, as it is in the triad. So hopefully that makes sense. So in the triad, the three things are interrelated. In reds, we have um, low energy availability at the heart with all of these 10 other um, physiological components and 10 other performance components sort of coming out as, as spokes on a wheel. And at the moment, menstrual function is one of those spokes on the wheel. And I guess I'm interested to see, um, because of the way um, reproductive hormones can affect those systems, as well as the low energy availability, will we change that diagram to show the potential synergistic effects of that? So five aspects for females, 
dealing with menstruation, dealing with cyclical changes in hormones, um, dealing with female um, athlete triad, um, dealing with reds, and I guess the, dealing with the future of understanding, and um, particularly with reds, how it all fits together. Hopefully that was clear. No, it was. It was, it was great. Also, what's great about this podcast is people can rewind. <laughs> absolutely, uh, absolutely. But so, you're the treat with the waving hands, I promise you. Jazz hands. No, no, no. The, uh, the conducting effect, <laughs> the, the animated uh, effect is priceless, um, which, of course, they're not seeing. But, no. <laughs> uh, but take it from me, listeners. It's amazing. So, so look, you, you know, this is one of these conversations that is obviously years of research. <laughs> Um, it takes longer to read one decent review paper than it does to do one podcast on this topic. So we're, we're never going to get the whole way through this. But there, I'm trying to, there's a few areas I, really, I, I do want to get into, and I'm aware we've got maybe 15, 20 minutes or so left um, to get into this. Um, so the one area that I find particularly interesting because it is so relevant to female athletes and male athletes, but, but we'll focus on the female athlete, is the fact that a reduced energy intake for the purposes of, um, you know, as a strategy to influence body composition, which is highly influential to performance, um, but also a growing area of interest is physique athletes who, um, who really take that to a whole nother level. They're, they're not just reducing body composition to a level that is not going to negatively impact performance. It's, it's well beyond that. It's entirely visual. In fact, it's got nothing to do with physical performance as long as they can make it on stage. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite severe actually what it takes to get to that point. Um, uh, and actually, uh, uh, I've contributed to a, a paper on 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 that, a case study actually that delves into that. It was with a male, but it was fascinating to see what's involved there. But um, let's talk about that a bit because I know we've done a podcast a few years ago. I know I know there's more that there's more that we could get into. But this impact of reducing energy intake, um, and I guess the two main areas then is is the risk that that has to energy availability which would be worth defining quickly because not everyone gets that topic. Um, but also the broader implications of, it's not just energy, obviously. We're reducing food because we don't just eat energy. We're not eating nutrients and, and the impact of those nutrients to you know, the skeleton, to the immune system and so on. So, so, so in that area, what are, you know, what are we talking about and what is the consequences of that in the real world to people? And is it serious? It, well, yes, it, it, yeah. it, it's very serious. Um, and I guess a, a couple of things are, are sort of all mixed up here. Um, so quite often um, the athletes um, that you're working with are very concerned with performance and, and, and rightly so. They want to win. You know, that's important to them. And I try to, to explain to them the consequences of low energy availability. And I'll, I'll tell you what they are in a second. I try to explain it to them and they see them as being very far off in the distant future you know it's, it's not right now and I, I try to show them that these health related consequences are for the now because and um, take something like take the skeletal system okay because it's one of the, the cornerstones of this area of research and um, clearly you know if they have low energy availability 
if their menstrual cycle is, is obliterated, they're amenorrheic, um, so meaning that the, there's no cyclical changes and they're down-regulated with these flat line of hormones. Um, estrogen is key to bone health. Bone health starts to suffer. And stress fracture um, incidence is, is increasing and the risk is increasing. And I was going to say to them, yeah, but this is a performance-related outcome because if you have a stress fracture, you're not training. If you're not training, you're not competing. And um, so, you know, it's about, you know, that buy-in with the athletes of taking something that seems like, oh, you know, who cares if I have osteoporosis when I'm 50 or 60? I'll have my gold medal by then. And so it's about taking it back to the now and, and obviously making it clear. Let's talk about some of the sort of health-related consequences. Um, so clearly, I, I, I threw osteoporosis out there. Um, so you'll see um, the social media is, as I say, alive right now with the female athlete stuff. And you will have seen, um, I would imagine if you're on Twitter, a lot of um, high-profile female athletes coming forward and saying, you know, that, you know, they've been told that they have osteoporosis in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, which can be obviously career ending. And, you know, it, it goes beyond just the, obviously the, the performance aspect. And clearly as nutritional practitioners, and um, that's going to change your, your, your feeding strategy for sure. Outside of that, so there's some of the other health-related consequences um, that we're looking at. Um, you know, we're now starting to see, obviously, changes in cognition um, with changes in, in menstrual cycle. Um, some people are showing changes in, in the ability to um, show training adaptations. Um, clearly, we're concerned about, you know, long-term issues on, you know, reproductive health as it is. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real complicated um, area. Um, let me throw in some other stuff there. We were asking about definitions and, and to make sure we're all talking about the, the same thing. So if you're interested in, in energy and some of this, you know, sort of um, fundamental work, um, you've got to be reading Anne Lauchs and, and her work. Um, you know, Mary Jane D'Souza, um, lots of great American, you know, Kate Ackerman, um, you know, Margaret Mountjoy, all of these, you know, Margaret Mountjoy, um, all of these um, authors. But, you know, we're looking around that 45 kilocalorie per kilogram. I've got my acronyms all in the wrong place. We're going for 45. I'm going to let, you're going to write it down somewhere. In yeah, yeah, they can get the numbers from the... Uh, Thank you. 45 is yeah. the number of kilocalories per kilogram lean body mass per day. I think I've got it in the right order. And what, what we're seeing is, and um, I saw actually a really great um, webcast from myself by Mary Jane Susan last week, and anything below 30 kilocals um, is where we start to see these disturbances, and we start to appreciate that, you know, we're now seeing low energy availability, and systems are starting to be affected, and as I say, that work, um, you know, back from Anne Louse shows that around 15 kilocalories, that's where we're really seeing that prevalence of amenorrhea in female athletes. So sorry, I've, I've thrown out a, a lot of authors' names, probably mispronounced no, I do apologise. Um, but I'm encouraging, readers, story, yeah, I'm encouraging readers here to, to go back and look at some of that work. But 45 kilocalories, going dropping down to 30, we're starting to see the effects of low energy availability. And from an endocrine um, sort of perspective, by 15 kilocalories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're starting to see amenorrhea in our athletes, and that's where the real problems, the consequences, health-related consequences, performance-related consequences are coming from there. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's startling, isn't it? Because most female athletes are in this for the long-term yeah. situation. You know, they, they're rarely going to be in a state of decreased energy availability for 
you know, a day, a few days or a week or whatever, it's going to be seasonal years. Um, and a lot of female athletes that I've worked with, you know, that, that is a, a major concern. And, you know, this will lead into actually the next thing I want to get into in a minute, which, um, will be the, uh, you know, um, concept of pill, which is highly relevant, but, but, but a lot of female athletes who have restricted their body composition strategically are in a situation where they may not be menstruating or very likely won't be menstruating, which has in itself some hidden issues, doesn't it? Because assumptions are made, um, which could be problematic. Sorry, I'm really interrupting you because I I really feel about this particular point and and I I, I wanna wanna make sure the the listeners get it. That idea of not menstruating, A, they often don't tell anybody, and B, they see it as, yes, I'm training hard enough, I'm doing, I'm doing this well. And, you know, so there are two, you know, really big problems. We, we need them to come forward because we need the, the physiologists, the nutritionists, we need the, the medics, the clinicians. They need to be aware of this to, to obviously get them menstruating again. And we need to, you know, get rid of this, you know, misconception that this shows that they're training hard enough. This shouldn't be a sacrifice of, you know, the elitism in sport. You know, we should be um, producing elite female athletes who still have the capability. And this really fits in with this idea of the numbers around energy availability. What happens is that, you know, when they're training at at these really high levels, um, it's a priority system. I'm prioritizing the activity. So it looks to physiological functioning and it says, well, okay, what can I sacrifice? And it basically, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying and I'm cutting a long story short, but it tells the body, well, I don't need to have a baby today. Shut off this system. So reproduction is one of those first systems to, to go. And it turns it off. They stop menstruating and, you know, there's more energy available available for, for you know, the sport and, and the activity. Um, but obviously this isn't ideal. You know, we're, we're always talking about homeostasis. You know, we want the body, we want our athletes to be healthy. And, you know, this is a sacrifice too far. So, so yeah, we must, A, bring it out into the open, and we, B, we must, you know, get rid of this long-term amenorrhea that is a badge of honour sometimes. And, you know, we've got to show our athletes this is not healthy and it's not good in, in the long term for health or, for, or performance. Yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> it's so, no, 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 it was important. I, and it's just so clearly important that we need to have conversations with our athletes. You know, we need to talk about these things and, and like you say, have those conversations and talk about these things so it doesn't become an embarrassing topic because it is entirely relevant to performance, um, adaptations to training and, and health and, and so on. You know, and there's areas we haven't got into because it's quite complex. Like, you know, I I believe very much in in if you're not testing, you're guessing and why guess when you can know, you know, it's important. We're highly trained people as sports scientists, physiologists, sports nutritionists, um, you know, in university or whatever, you're taught to use, you know, you know, metabolic testing and DEXAs and so on, you know, and yet they tend not to get used in practice. We need to, we need to reverse that trend and actually use this stuff to, to understand our, our, our clients, our athletes, um, and give much better recommendations, for example, you know, how much um, food they should be eating, um, you know, get the periodize the, the carbohydrates so that they get sufficient energy intake to support training and, and performance, but also keep body composition on point. But without the testing, it's going to be damn difficult 
to, to get there. Um, but I'm aware of time. So, <coughs> excuse me, let's get into the final topic that we have to talk about, which is the relevance of the contraceptive pill. Um, contraception, um, you know, it is very realistic that a huge amount of female athletes, um, which will be primarily of the younger age group, will be on some form of contraceptive uh, pill. Um, you know, again, this is something that particularly male practitioners may not want to talk about with their female athletes, but they must. Um, and, and, and you can help us understand now, Kirsty, you know, why, why is it important that, that, that we know firstly that they're doing this, but secondly, what are the implications, implications of being on the contraceptive pill and how that relates to, to practice? Okay, no, so this is, this is really important. So um, at the start, we obviously talked about the menstrual cycle and, and the changes. And I um, briefly mentioned that you're only accounting for 50% of female athletes. Now, I know this, I, ha- I promise you I haven't made this number up. So a recent study by one of my PhD students, um, who's, who's just finished now, uh, Dan Martin, he, um, we, we did this uh, prevalence study and we captured elite female athletes in in the uk you didn't have to be british but you had to be based in the uk and we asked them um, essentially if you use an uh, oh, well actually we asked them if they use a hormonal contraceptive or if they didn't so we have users and non-users and we saw pretty much a 50 50 split what does this mean for the practitioner it means that you've got to understand the endocrine system like we've just spent the last 40, 45 minutes talking about because that will account for half your athletes. And for the other half, you, you're going to now have to get to grips with it a second, a second lot of information. Um, we asked about hormonal contraceptives because I think it's an important point to note that um, there are other types of contraception that change your hormonal profile outside of just the, the oral ones. And when we did the study, we found, um, which is great for the simplicity of our podcast, that the majority of athletes are still using oral contraceptives. There are others who use implants, injections, et cetera, et cetera, but the majority use oral contraceptives. So let's just talk about those because otherwise our brains will explode. Um, So of the oral contraceptives, what does this mean? Let me tell you quickly. So essentially, it's something that you're putting into the system. So it's exogenous, we would say, external to the body. We put it in. What happens to your menstrual cycle? Um, And I'm I'm sort of, I would say, sort of whitewashing this, generalizing. Um, Basically, estrogen and progesterone stop being cyclical and they are down-regulated. So they become low and they stay low, Okay. Most traditional oral contraceptives are based on a 21 pill taking days and seven pill free days. So for 21 days, I take a pill, my hormone concentrations are low. In the seven pill free days, yes, we do see a slight rise in our estrogen and progesterone, but this slight rise still only equates to the lowest concentration that we see in the menstrual cycle, okay? So the take home message is, if your athlete is using an oral contraceptive, they don't have cyclical changes. So you're not suddenly worried about, oh, which phase is she in and what's peaking and what's you know at its lowest point. They're consistently low. So that, I guess, in some respects, the practitioner makes things easier. But on the flip side, and this is the important thing, they're now down-regulated and they have consistently low levels of estrogen and progesterone. So 
if estrogen and progesterone have some benefits, you're not seeing those in your athletes. So take the um, example of the skeletal system, consistently low estrogen, we can theorize that this may have a negative effect upon bone health. I'm saying theorize because we don't have yet enough supporting evidence for this, but the theory would hold, hold true. If estrogen you know, promotes good bone health, if you don't have it, you may well see um, negative effects. So as the practitioner, we need to understand which female we have, the you know, menstruating cyclical one, or the down-regulated oral contraceptive user. And we need to then understand potential knock-on effects. I, I hope that's helped. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Well, of course, we've also got the, the additive effects of the female athlete who's on a contraceptive pill, but who's also in a fairly significant state of energy restriction. Oh, this is, yeah, this is the worms open there, isn't it? Yeah. Well, absolutely, because if you think, um, when, when we're considering low energy, um, and this is really important for the practitioners, um, if, if we have an athlete who used to have a menstrual cycle, was menstruating, when she loses that, that's a really great warning sign for us that we, you know, we may be seeing an athlete with low energy availability. We don't have that in the oral contraceptive user you know so we, we don't have that and so therefore you know we may well miss these athletes you know we don't have an early detection system we're going to have to work a lot harder it really fits in what you said about um you know making sure that we're testing regularly and, and using that information because they may go unnoticed this low energy availability for quite a quite a long time so yeah so and especially then if, if of course outside of just the detection of low energy availability you know the effects may well be the additive um so yeah so it's a, it could be a, a double whammy so you know those negative negative effects are amplified in, in the contraceptive users so yeah it's a it's a really big area but we, we spoke briefly about you know how female athletes are underrepresented in in the in research um, even more so for oral contraceptive users. So there are more studies regarding the menstrual cycle and their effects than there are of oral contraceptives and their effects. And that's something that, you know, myself and my group um, of, of researchers who work with me and, and many of my really great collaborators around the world, um, this is a priority for us looking at oral contraceptives and their effects. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, look, the fact that we can have an hour's discussion about this stuff, it just shows you, doesn't it, just how complex but also i think it's obvious to the listener just how important all of this stuff is so hopefully this will stimulate people to dive much deeper into this in information um so just just a final point because you know we're sort of threatening to talk about nutritional stuff here but um there are other maybe more generalized concerns for female athletes um and i'm thinking you know, protein, we don't have to get too deep into this, but protein um, intake, uh, you know, when we talk about restricted energy intake, we, we, we constantly talk about carbohydrates because that's the obsession, maybe fats, um, but protein is also another consequence of not eating enough food. Um, and also potentially, you know, maybe uh, supportive supplementation, like, you know, do, is there any benefit to things like vitamin D, um, gem, you know, whether we're talking about humans, we talk about, yes, there's benefits at certain times of the year for vitamin D, but specifically females is what I'm interested in. Um, and maybe other, anything else like calcium or whatever is that, you know, is there any just final points here that are worth thinking about? 
Oh, you say that like it's a quick answer. Okay, I know. <laughs> I will make it one. Okay. So I was lucky, um, really lucky, actually, very fortunate, and um, recently to contribute to um, a guidance document um, around sort of uh, nutritional guidance for, for well, <laughs> for special populations. And actually, um, yeah, that, that sparked a little debate on Twitter of whether females should be considered special population. But anyway, aside from that, um, I made a small contribution around, you know, um, female athletes. Mm. And um, I guess the, the upshot of this is that, you know, if we're not talking specifically about low energy availability, if we're just talking here about athletes and fueling athletes, then we would still promote the idea that it will be the demands of the sport, the training, and the situation that still drives those nutritional guidelines, regardless of sex. And um, so I guess that's a real sort of, you know, headline, headline there. Um, and it also gets me out of a very long answer. But no, aside, aside from that, so if low energy availability is, is a consideration, and clearly we know it affects men, but due to the potential synergistic effects of reproductive function, um, we need to consider these females. So yes, um, restoring energy to take away the sacrifice of reproductive function is the most important. And um, you know, clearly that's easier said than done. And I know that I have on many occasions, you know, glibly said, there you go, nutritionists, increase energy. And they all, you know, head in hand say, oh, that's yeah, impossible. Especially yeah. leanness is a consideration. But yes, so that's the main priority for our female athletes, um, restoring um, energy availability. You're right, there may well be some considerations around um, calcium and iron. Um, but again, there's nothing I can I can give you. There's no magic number off um, that we can just tell you. It fits back very nicely. What a nice way to finish, to come back in a loop to what you said. We need to, to be measuring this. We cannot assume that all females are anemic and iron deficient, you know, the, the same for calcium. So they're the two big ones to look out for. But without testing, um, it's very hard to give a recommendation on, on you know, what we're dealing with. Um, I will just maybe as a, a slight aside, um, iron in particular, because what we sometimes see are people who have heavy menstrual bleeding, and that is linked with, with anemia. So yes, restore energy if low energy availability is an issue. So sorry, let me rewind. The demands of the sport are key. If low energy availability is a consideration, restore energy. And on top of that, look at iron and, and iron deficiency and consider calcium. But test don't guess. Isn't that what you say? That's exactly it. And that's really oh. what I wanted to hear is that's my whole mission thing, really. You know, we need we need not just qualified practitioners, we need knowledgeable, competent practitioners who are able to, as I as I like to say, contextualize all this stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, we need some tools in the toolbox, which isn't just knowledge or certifications and so on. It's going to be some applied skills and um, testing is, is part of that process. And now is better than ever, you know. Um, so listen, um, I, I think that's about as much as we can cover in, 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 this, in this podcast. Um, naturally, it segues into other potential podcasts as always. But but thank you so much for your time, Kirsty. It's been fascinating. Um, as I said to, to everyone, um, please listen to episode 57. We delve a lot more into the triad and red specifically, which is largely up to date still um, in that particular uh, podcast. Um, you've contributed a variety of, of lectures to our um, diploma in performance nutrition um, and uh, we'll for sure have you back at future um, performance nutrition uh, update live 
events that we have for CPD for, for people. Um, but if people want to uh, learn more from you, I mean, I'll put the links to, um, you know, Nottingham, Trent University, etc. But uh, things like, you know, Twitter and so on, where, where would people find you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's all your fault that I'm on Twitter. So any any controversial I'll tweet, yeah, <laughs> you put me on there. So, yeah, no, I'm on Twitter and um, my, my handle, is that what you call it, is at Elliot Sale. Watch out for the Elliot. It's tricky. It's got two L's and two T's. Um, yeah, so at Elliot Sale, you can find me on Twitter. But, yeah, I've been, uh, as I said, I've been really fortunate to contribute to a number of sort of recent reviews and guidelines. So they're out there if you I'll link to want those. to do a search. And uh, yeah, a shameless plug, I also contributed a, a chapter recently to a, a really nice new book on the exercising females. So it might be a nice place for some people to start if, if this is the new area for, for them. So there's a chapter in there. Um, but myself uh, and another Kirsty, um, you know, we're starting our own gang on um, oral contraceptives and their effect on performance. So yeah, so I'm out there. Yeah. No, no, that's great. Yeah, well, I, like I say, I'll put all that into the on our website for you. So, um, well, look, thank you. We did it. We we, we managed it. Hopefully, it won't be uh, two and a half years until we uh, get into this again. But obviously, as the body of knowledge progresses and moves, we'll update this this topic. But I'm sure the listeners will agree it's been fascinating. I want to encourage everyone to read the various papers and consensus statements and so on that I will link to. And um, we will bring another episode of the We Do Science podcast back to you all very soon. And uh, thank you once again, Kirsty. Lovely. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Lovely. Thanks.